And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's hump day, Wednesday. Bruce Anderson, smoke, mirrors, and the truth coming right up. And welcome aboard to the Wednesday episode of The Bridge. It's Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Toronto for this day. You know, I'm not sure I've uh, ever seen anything quite like it. What we witnessed over the last what, five or six days. That's a big statement because you've seen a lot. I have seen a lot. You know, actually, I have seen a lot. And I've seen a lot of things bigger than this, but they were outside of Parliament. In terms of inside Parliament, and in, in terms of a kind of international incident, because really that's what it's become, in terms of a huge embarrassment uh, to the Canadian Parliament, clearly to the Speaker of Parliament, but to the government and to all members of Parliament. They all stood there. They all stood there clapping and smiling and pointing and waving. And then, uh, of course, the truth came out. And everybody did a 180 and a backflip and uh, called for a head, a head of the speaker, and they got it. But it hasn't stopped there, and there are a lot of people wondering what, what comes next. Like, how do you... How do you extract yourself from this mess, or do you just wait for it to blow over and a week from now, perhaps somebody will be talking about it? Maybe a couple of days from now, nobody will be talking about it. But having said all that, I go back to my opening line. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like what we witnessed, what we witnessed in the House and the, the fallout from it. What about you? Uh, I don't know if it it reaches that level of um, never seen anything as uh, as dramatic as that before for me. Uh, but obviously, it was a huge, huge error. It was a mistake. Um, and I guess that's part of why I say I don't know if I've I don't know if it's the kind of the most significant mistake, blunder, blow up that I've ever seen. In part because I, I think at the end of it all. Uh, the speaker made a mistake. I don't know the nature of the mistake that he made in the sense that he hasn't said um, how many invitations did he get? Did he know this fellow or his son? Uh, how did he decide that he was going to um, uh, secure him a seat? Um, somebody must have been involved in making that choice. Uh, it wasn't just that, you know, this fellow's son called and said, can I pick up a ticket? And the answer was yes. There was more to it than that. We just haven't heard it, and maybe we never will. Um, but it, it really was the what happened after the mistake was made uh, that became the uh, the real challenge, I think, for a lot of different players involved, chief among them the speaker, obviously, who um, who never should have taken four days or however many days it was since the story um emerged to resign. It was always obvious to me that that was how that was going to end. Um, it should have been obvious to him by waiting as long as he did and having the parties, three of the parties anyway, the Liberals, the Bloc, and the NDP all say that he should resign. 
he allowed himself to be put in another embarrassing situation where it no longer looked like it was his choice to resign as a matter of honor, but rather that there was no way for him to continue. Another mistake by uh, Mr. Rhoda, who by all accounts, I don't know him, is a, is a decent man, but but really screwed this up uh, pretty severely. I, I think that the, uh, the Conservatives are obviously trying to make more of this error stick to the Prime Minister and the Liberals. That's the way that politics works. And the Liberals gave them a little bit of opportunity to do that, but we can come to that. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty dramatic, but uh, to your point about will we be talking about it in two or three days or five days, I, I, I don't think most Canadians will be. I think it's one of those things where people can look at it and say it was a monster screw up, and uh, but there are other things going on in our lives. Um, I think I tend to agree with you in, in terms of the longevity of this, but it's always going to be one of those things that sort of is hanging on the wall um, in the background. You know, yep. the day the Nazi was allowed into the House of Commons and everybody clapped for him. You know, nobody's yep. going to forget that. That'll always be no. there. Just like, just like the waving of the Nazi flag at the convoy rally a year, a year and a half ago. But this one is like... This is brutal. Um, let me let me ask you about the the embarrassment factor. Is it just the em- speaker's embarrassment? I mean, I tend to think it's there. The, they all should be embarrassed by what happened. They all, everybody's just assumed that the facts were as stated by the speaker in the chair, and yeah, I suppose that's understandable. But I mean, nobody really thought it through. You know, <laughs> if he was fighting the Russians in Ukraine in the Second World War, there's only one side he could have been on. <laughs> it, it wasn't the Allied side. So nobody uh, seemed to think that one through too hard. But this issue of pinning it on the government or the prime minister directly, clearly what Polyev is trying to do, and as you said, that's politics. But is there something that the prime minister has to do? And uh, I mean, uh, the embarrassment for the country, the uh, clear, you know, slight that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Zelensky has to face as a result of being there. Is there something that Justin Trudeau has to say or do beyond what he's said or done already? I don't know has to, but probably should. Um, I, I was surprised that, um, that to my knowledge, anyway, he hasn't stood in the house and a, a kind of addressed the um, the various factors that broke down in this. I think there's an explanation. I think the explanation is never pretty, but an explanation sometimes is better than no explanation. Um, I do think that there's a little bit of weight attached to the argument that if you've got a foreign leader coming to the House of Commons, especially a foreign leader who's involved in a highly controversial war, that the government has some responsibility to make sure that the House galleries are full of people for whom that's a safe choice. Was there some involvement by the government um, in that process? Presumably there was. Um, Did it involve looking at the invitees of of everyone, including the speaker, perhaps not. But I think at some point, um, 
it's reasonable to ask the government for an explanation as to how that happened. Um, I don't think that it will be shocking. I don't think it will be much more than the decision for Mr. Zelensky to come to Ottawa was made relatively late in the process. It doesn't seem to me like this is one of those kind of state visits where you have months to prepare. Um, it felt like there were days to prepare and sometimes things happen in those situations that um, that nobody kind of thinks to um, has enough time or the inclination sometimes because they're busy with other things to think through and, and get right. Um, but I do think that um, someone on the government side is also responsible for uh, the motion to try to erase from the record um, what happened uh, with that acknowledgement. And I don't think that was a good choice. Uh, I, I think that the critics of that choice are right to criticize it. I'm glad that it didn't pass. I'm glad that it didn't happen. It feels to me that um, Hansard is the record of what happened in the House of Commons and um, uh, and removing something from the record, especially something that has the, uh, the consequence that this event has had, uh, I think is not a, is not a good idea. So, um, Having said all of that, I look, I think that the conservatives are getting pretty far out over their skis on this sometimes, especially when we think about the fact that there was a high profile um, German politician who visited and dined with a number of their caucus members not very many months ago, um, whose political leanings are pretty clearly uh, the sort that... Uh, well, where the where where the word Nazi has been used as a descriptor, um, so uh, there are lots of reasons why I don't think this is going to persist very much uh, beyond this week, perhaps. Uh, but it's a it's it's some more scar tissue for a government that didn't need more. Uh, there's no no doubt about that. Your point about uh, Trudeau not being in the House of Commons this week is is accurate. It has not been in there. He is there later today. Um, and one assumes that in some fashion he's going to address this uh, if for no other reason that you can be sure that uh, Pierre Polyev, if he is in the House, is going to be challenging him. He was certainly wanting to challenge the Prime Minister yesterday, so I assume he'll be uh, trying again today. Um, I wonder how much on the Liberal side that the caucus and the cabinet were leading on the push here for the resignation of the Speaker. Um, the Prime well, I Minister, suspect quite a bit. Yeah, the Prime Minister was careful with his wording, uh, but it was clear he was he was pissed, and he he wanted he wanted something to happen. Um, but the cab members of the cabinet and members of the caucus were much more direct in what they were saying, um, and then apparently last night I I don't know anything about it, but last night there was some form of Liberal caucus meeting that took place uh, with members of, uh, you know, backbench MPs and cabinet ministers. Uh, the prime minister was not at it. Uh, so I don't know what's going on inside that party. Um, it's a challenging time. They've had a couple of big meetings, had a big caucus meeting two weeks ago where the stories continue to come out. Uh, basically backing what you said two weeks ago, that it was a really 
very open and aggressive uh, presentation by caucus members to the prime minister about what they thought was wrong about the directions the party was taking and the direction he was taking. So I, I don't know whether we should make more of what ha- what was going on last night or that the, the, the caucus and the cabinet seem to be leading on the push for resignation or not, uh, or whether the PM knew that was going to be happening and just let it happen. Because Yeah, I, I don't know if I use the word aggressive to describe the conversation that happened um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and obviously I've only heard it third hand, um, but the... But it was blunt, I think, and it was a, a you know people were given an opportunity, and as I understand, it took the opportunity to describe what they were hearing at the um, at the doorsteps in their constituencies, most of which was critical of the government and of the prime minister. Um, and you know, you and I have been around long enough to know that these things do work in relatively predictable cycles, and this is part of what happens uh, when you're that long in office when. The economy feels like it's in doldrums or worse, depending on your personal financial situation. A lot of people are finding uh, anxiety about food costs or anxiety about renewals of their mortgages. They're having trouble finding affordable places to live. Um, So it would be surprising if uh, people weren't frustrated and fed up and expressing it to MPs when they come to the door saying, how's it all going? Um, So I, I actually think that this is the way our democracy functions when it's healthy is that MPs hear from people. They bring those views back. They get filtered into the political calculations of the government or the party, which are if they're, if they're not in government. And then it's a question of what are we going to do about it? Are we going to be agile enough and creative enough and diligent enough to try to turn around our fortunes? There are different polls out there. Some show liberals behind by six or seven, some 12 or some 16, but they all point to a liberal loss in the next election unless something changes in the trajectory of the two main parties. Uh, As to what happened last night, I don't know. I didn't didn't hear about a meeting, but it wouldn't surprise me that there was a conversation. Um, And I think, you know, if I were in that liberal caucus, the conversation I'd want to have is, we have issues management people. Why did it take us so long to figure out what the answer was to the question of who is this guy? Why was he there? What happened? That seemed to, you know, it may seem to people outside the political uh, domain that, well, it taking a day to come to an answer about that seems like a reasonable time frame. But if you're in politics and you're feeling the heat on Twitter or uh, Facebook or whatever social media platform you use, or you're getting emails from people in your constituency, uh, a day is a long time. Um, And you want to know something more quickly than that. You want to know what it is that the government has to say or what the explanation is. And alongside that, um, yesterday morning, I think, was the first time that liberal politicians said probably the speaker should think about whether to resign. Now, from my standpoint, um, that was two days late, uh, at least. Um, I don't know why everybody didn't have the instinct to say the position of speaker, the role of speaker, the prestige of the house was compromised. And so somebody has to be accountable for that. Or we live in a world where nobody's accountable for anything. Um, And I don't believe that we should be going down that 
second road. I think that this is this was one of those pretty clear times. I don't like Andrew Coyne wrote the other day. I don't think that every error should immediately lead to resignation. I think there needs to be a higher standard than the the hollering on social platforms sometimes sounds like. But this certainly met the standard of uh, speaker should go. And if he didn't decide to go right away, people shouldn't have necessarily given him two or three days to uh, to think it over um, before they said, here's what we think should happen. And um, the conservatives didn't want to do that because they wanted to pin it all on the liberals. Uh, but the block in the NDP got out ahead of the liberals. And I don't really understand if, if I'm a liberal caucus member, I'm, I'm a little frustrated with that, uh, that, that it took that long to decide what the position was going to be. Um, you know, they were, they didn't suddenly decide yesterday morning. You're right. Uh, because they, a, a lot of them wanted, wrote it or quit, get out, like as of Monday, as soon as it started to break. But they weren't saying it publicly. They were whispering it. There were stories out by certainly Monday night that senior members of the Liberal caucus wanted wanted them to quit, but they just weren't putting their name to it. By Tuesday morning, and this is why I guess I asked that question at the beginning, that they seem to be, and this has been kind of cleared, at least to me, to my thinking, that the, the, the caucus and some members of the cabinet have been out front of the prime minister's office on a number of issues. Um, you know, we debating the word aggressive. They were they have a much more aggressive tone. Some of them, some of them towards the conservative leader uh, than had been evident before that caucus at the end of the summer. Um, but that's what you know. The fact that they by Yesterday morning, Tuesday morning, they were attaching their name to it. I think uh, Melanie Jolie was the first to come out as a senior cabinet or say he's got to go. And then others followed. And certainly members of the caucus followed. And, you know, by within hours, he was gone. Um, and so that's that was what was behind my, my question or my thinking that we seem to be witnessing a situation, and as you said a little while ago, you know we've seen these kind of movies before play out in politics in our country, both mm-hmm. at the federal and provincial level, and you kind of know the direction these things are heading. Um, but when you have a, a caucus and a cabinet that's a seemingly a step ahead of the prime minister's office on some of the strategic moves, whether by accident or whether it's deliberate, or whether it's with the knowledge of the PMO, I don't know. But that's most, what it looks like. Yeah, the most common uh, frustration, I think, for people in on the government side um, has tended to be that um, everything is very centralized. That's a very common, you know, I don't remember a government where that wasn't a criticism, but the combination of centralization of power and decisions taking longer to be made, uh, a sense that there isn't enough flow of information back and forth in a timely enough fashion. Uh, These normal frustrations seem to me to be uh, at a higher level, in part because I think it's a a PMO that's kind of reduced in size, um, hasn't replaced a number of key people over time, and has a, a degree of distance between itself and the caucus that 
it is usually a mistake when it happens. It usually creates more friction than a leader needs. And leaders sometimes have made special efforts to try to overcome that natural tendency for distance to grow between their office and caucus. And I think it's reasonable to say that I don't think Justin Trudeau has put that much effort into keeping his caucus close emotionally. So there are those factors there. And so when you also move through what most MPs will think is the last shuffle before the next election, uh, the, the whole question of who's my boss and who do I care about the most, who do I care about pleasing the most, or um, whose opinion do I care about the most, changes a little bit. Um, before that shuffle, to some significant degree, it's still, I care about pleasing the prime minister. I, I want him to see me doing a good job. Um, get 10, 12, 16 points behind and that last shuffle behind you. And all of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of MPs for whom I might lose my seat, uh, becomes a bigger part of the calculation. And being really attentive uh, to those pressures sort of moves up the the hierarchy of, uh, of priorities. And I think there's a little bit of that going on. And so uh, you've got MPs who want to talk about what it's going to take for them to win their seats again, what it's going to take for Liberals to win another election. And I, I, I don't think that after the weekend that we had, or the week before that, that they're feeling more confident uh, that the um, that their party is is kind of pursuing a strategy that's perfectly fit for winning another election yet. I like your point about the centralization of power uh, within the prime minister's office and how this goes back a long way. You know, I'm reading, I'm currently reading the um, uh, John Ibbotson's uh, new book on uh, the Pearson Diefenbaker years. Um, it's called The Duel. I'm not sure if it's actually out yet. They sent me an advanced copy and it's, it's really interesting. There's a lot of great little anecdotes in it. Uh, but he talks about when Diefenbaker defeated Saint-Laurent in 57. Uh, surprising victory. People didn't expect it, and he suddenly won, and he had a minority government. Um, but initially, he basically <laughs> he basically wanted all the power himself. He, did, he, he only appointed a couple of key cabinet ministers and left the, uh, the rest of the cabinet unappointed. And off he went to a, uh, an international conference, I think it was a Commonwealth conference, um, where he assumed the role of the foreign minister as well. Uh, he had an appointed one. And he got a briefing from Pearson, who was the outgoing uh, uh, foreign minister in the Saint Laurent government, and eventually would you know, be, be the big uh, contender against Diefenbaker in the, the decade ahead. But the Pearson said to him, no, 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 you, you know, like, you, sh you can't do this. You really need a, a, a foreign minister. And Diefenbaker said, well, eventually I'll get one, but I'm going to do this one myself. I want to do this. <laughs> that was a classic case of you know, centralizing the power. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it has been a constant, and it's, it seems to have got more and more an issue through successive governments, even as, as people like Justin Trudeau swore coming in that they weren't going to do that. But then it just seems to happen, and that office and the people in that office have more and more power. Um, than even the governments before them. Well, I, th I think the other thing that's 
it's more true today perhaps than it was in the past is that there's a very strong instinct to avoid errors and um you know i think that in in the center as people refer to it in politics you're either you have confidence in your team to the extent that you're saying go everybody do your things and we have confidence that it's you know you're going to make good decisions and they're going to accrue credit to the government and they're going to accomplish the things that are in your mandate letters and that sort of thing so that that's one setting which which comes with knowing that there will be some things that screw up um but that it's better to err on the side of let a thousand ships sail than it is to keep them all in the harbor and decide which one is going to go out on what particular moment and you've evaluated all of the risks of something going wrong and that you've tried to mitigate those risks. Um, that's kind of the other setting. And I think right now the government's got a management challenge in that sense of it, it probably can't win another election unless more of its senior in particular, its senior ministers are scoring more goals and are free to kind of, you know, play the way that they can play. Um, but the event of the last weekend uh, will reinforce that instinct to um, maybe overmanage for risk avoidance. What could go wrong? Let's check everything. Let's make sure that um, we're not setting ourselves up for some other thing that go bump in the night. I, I don't suggest for a minute that it's easy. Uh, I think the people doing these jobs work extraordinarily hard, and almost all of them have really good judgment. Um, it's a it's a part of the job though that it wears on you that it that it consumes your life that it consumes incredible amounts of mental energy that it seems kind of thankless most of the time um and on top of all of that people are human uh, mistakes do get made and um the social media environment that we live in is pretty uh unforgiving uh about mistakes and the kinds of things that are said when people make mistakes are more trenchant, more uh, poisonous sometimes um, than they might have been at different times in the past. Now, whenever I say something like that, it's a good thing my wife doesn't listen to this podcast because she <laughs> tends to say, well, you know, people used to say some pretty nasty things about each other um, a long time ago. And I'm sure that's right. But yesterday was a good example, Peter, of, um, you know, there was a conservative MP who who said that she thought that the liberal house leader was a disgrace that's unparliamentary language and so this you know the speaker got up and said i'm going to have to take a look at the record because that might have been unparliamentary language now you and i can look at that and go well that's the way that speakers normally say that even though it was very clear and and the mp in question stood up and said it again so there wasn't really a need for let's go and look at the game tape like they do in football. Let's get in that tent and see if a foul occurred. The foul occurred. Um, and uh, where am I going? I'm going, well, the degree of, of friction and the nature of the friction and the things that people say to each other in the house uh, just keeps on kind of going in a direction. And uh Long-time observers, you will have probably noticed this in some of the comments on social media in the last little while, are saying it's pretty bad right now. And I don't think it's a good thing um, for people to race to the uh, 
to the ugliest ways in which they can characterize each other. I think they should be as critical as they want to be, but but stay within some lines is, is where I come from on this, on both sides. And the House rules need updating of it. I mean, they're like prehistoric, some of the rules. Like, you're not allowed to say whether somebody's in the House or not. Like, no, you're not allowed to say they're not in the House. So a number of times yesterday, the Speaker... Had There's to- a reason for that, though. Well, yeah, but really, come on. <laughs> it's on television. They can see whether somebody's there or not. I mean, it's ridiculous. Anyway, let's... There's a reason that re- that relates to all parties having agreed at one point, I guess, that that was a thing. Sure, that was because, in like 1612. I know, I, I think it was... You know, look, I don't want to defend it. I think that the Prime Minister, it would have been better for the Prime Minister to have been there. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, it, it should have been. All, all I'm saying is that, you know, you can... A, you can see that he's not there, and B, really, you know... The, that he's, you know, the the government can say, well, you know, he's doing business such and such place. Anyway, if we end up debating the arcane laws of inside parliament, where, where but do you agree with me that there should be some language that's considered unparliamentary? Yeah, I think so. And you think I, it should I, be I saw rewritten, that. and we should raise the, uh, you know, the bar and say disgrace falls underneath. I the think bar? we should bring it into the twenty uh, first century in terms of the way. Uh, it, you know, we can get into this discussion, it, it, you know, that the, the they're having in the States is, it, it, you know, can you wear whatever you want inside the uh, inside Congress? You know, there's uh, what's his name? The, the, one of the senators, I think, from Pennsylvania is wearing shorts and a T-shirt and uh, and others are going, oh, no, no, my God, you can't do that. You have to wear a jacket and tie and blah, 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 blah. Really, they, there are important things to discuss and debate and and i'm not sure dress is one of them uh for 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 taking part in these in these kind of discussions but anyways i said if we if we end up with a discussion here about the arcane sometimes arcane laws inside of a a parliament or a legislative body we're uh, we're sunk i have a much better thing to raise and i'm going to raise it with you right (laughs) right after this And welcome back. Uh, you're listening to The Bridge, the Wednesday edition, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. Bruce is in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Toronto. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching us on our YouTube channel, where the numbers uh, rose dramatically last week as we were discussing the <laughs> last week's scandal, the, uh, the Canada versus India scandal. And I'm pretty sure the numbers rose dramatically because word got around in India that, that we were discussing this, and there were a lot of a lot of uh, uh, notes on our YouTube channel, um, comments, um, and uh, they weren't uh, very flattering. Some of them were using unparliamentary language to describe uh, the discussions we were having. Despite your warning, I remember you gave people like, like we don't need to read those. Well, I don't mind. I don't mind reading ones that are they're constructive in their criticism. It's just like the the, the wacko ones that uh, the the turn out every once in a while. Um, anyway, if you are watching on our YouTube channel right now, you're seeing that Bruce is wearing a dramatically, you know, very, 
very nice looking sweater. And the reason I point it out is because it's from a golf course that the both of us um, uh, like to play at and are members of in Scotland called the Brora Golf Course. And it's north of Dornick. Uh, it's up in the Highlands. And it, it's a great course. It's a challenging course. But one of the things it's known for is that, you know, in Scotland, uh, there's, there's the free-to-roam laws, and that applies not just to people but to uh, cows and sheep. And uh, they're, all, <laughs> they're all over the Brora Golf Course, uh, which can make uh, shots quite challenging to, uh, to end up, you know, dropping it just between the cows and the sheep uh near the green which is uh encircled with barbed wire but uh nobody does it better than bruce he's a, such an excellent golfer these days he has a whole new swing and new attitude and he's just shooting the lights out it's not barbed wire though remember it's electric wire around yeah. the greens so that the sheep and the cattle get a little tiny shock right. and every once in a while you and i will if we uh, bump up against it but it's a it's a fun place for sure so is that more humane than barbed wire I, th I think it might be, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, my question that I wanted to get to here in our last segment, it's not about golf or cows or sheep or barbed wire or electrified wire. It's about the other area that you know well, and that's polling. Um, I, I'm sure you saw last weekend two polls that came out in the United States on Sunday or part of the morning shows on Sunday. Um, one from ABC News, absolutely reputable news organization. The other from NBC, equally reputable. And both have polling units, um, which uh, have been credited with, um, you know, good you know, results that are uh, uh, respected over the years. So anyway, same question. And it's basically head on hand. Biden versus Trump, who's ahead at this point. Taken at the same time, I think relatively similar in size of poll. So margin of error, basically the same. The ABC poll had Trump 10 points ahead of Biden. The NBC poll had them even. ABC put out a, a, a statement along with their poll saying, you know what, um, this may be an outlier, this poll, because it doesn't uh, reflect what other polling uh, agencies are, are finding, not just the NBC one, but others. Um, that's rare. I, I won't use the term, I've never seen that before, but it's certainly rare that a, a, a company or a news agency that is releasing a poll would say at the same time, this could be an outlier. In other words, it could be wrong. 19 times out of 20, they're right. Uh, they're confident in the results. One time out of 20, maybe not so much. And that seems to be what ABC was suggesting about this one. Yeah. What did you think about that? Well, I saw, uh, as I was... Um um, scrolling a little bit this morning, I saw a piece that I meant to read later today that um, was a kind of a latest piece of analysis about outlier polls. So I'm going to read that, but that's not going to inform my answer right now because I haven't read it yet. But <laughs> Don't let that stop you. <laughs> I think that for ABC to put out a statement with that caveat, 
first of all, if they were sure their poll was wrong, they probably would have just flushed it, not put it out. So they would have had conversations with their pollsters to say, why is this number so different from other people's numbers? And the pollsters would have had an argument uh, to make. Now, whether the argument is that they believed in their methodology to be capable of gathering a more representative sample or whether their methodology included uh, what some American pollsters do as a matter of course, which is an estimate of uh, what likely voters are going to do. We tend not to report that in the same way in Canada, right? We we look at adults 18 and older and we say, this is what it looks like. In the United States, a lot of polling is reported. Um, the numbers are reported as proportions of likely voters who are supporting one candidate or another. What that does is it removes all of the people who probably won't vote and in many cases won't vote because they really don't have strong feelings one way or another about politics or about political parties or candidates. So I don't know in the difference between NBC and ABC if there was a methodological difference there, but I'm going to look into it now that you've sprung it on me this morning. Um, (laughs) And I'm going to also find that piece and maybe you and I can post it so um, listeners and viewers can can consume it. Um, In our in the way that our polls are used as we get closer to an election, pollsters generally do make some allowances in their reporting for likely voters. And they, when they're trying to predict seats, which as you know, I've never been really a big fan of, uh, they do apply some weights uh, associated with who's more likely to turn out and who's not to produce their seat projection models. Uh, But that's not what we're talking about right now. What we're really talking about now is two samples that might have been um, gathered differently, that might have had different makeups, that might have used different methodologies as it relates to likely voters or voters in general. And um, I wish I had the answer to your question, but I'm going to look into it. Well, it it underlines the fact that we don't, at least recently, we we don't... um, we don't agree as to what we're going to talk about. We just sort of start talking. I mean, sometimes talking. it's obvious. Obviously, we were going to talk about the speaker thing. I'm glad we're talking about it because, as you know, I like to pay a lot of attention to the American election. I don't, I don't think we've seen a poll that shows uh, Biden with a significant lead. And I no. think that it's causing a lot of consternation among Democrats. Um, Donald Trump had another legal setback. Last night, massive potential legal setback. Also, um, but I saw another poll out this morning that shows among the Republican uh, uh, voter pool, compared to the other people who are running for the nomination, he's miles ahead. It, it, this does not dent his uh, popularity with that group. You know, there's a uh, there's a Republican debate tonight uh, with seven of the the contenders. Uh, for the nomination, uh, but the lead contender, the one, as you say, who's miles ahead, Donald Trump, is not there. He just sort of blown them off. And it, you know, and he, he like gets away with it. You know, the, 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 the debates are organized by the party itself. And they say, no, it's okay. He doesn't have to come. Well, really? <laughs> it just seems to me bizarre. Uh, I can understand why he wouldn't want to come. 
if he can get away with it, if it he kind can get of away makes sense it, sure. in a in a in a in a rotten way. I mean, in the sense that if you're if you're not up for the competition or you don't believe that politics should have a competition for the nomination, um, then I guess you don't go. But uh, it's one piece of dozens of things that lead people to the conclusion that he doesn't really believe in the in the constitution this isn't a constitutional matter but he doesn't believe in any of the norms that have prevailed in politics for a long period of time and he gets away with unlike anybody ever has before that i can recall he gets away with ignoring those norms because people see something in him that they that they value and maybe one of those things is that he thumbs his nose at convention um and they like that um yeah, the rest of like, us find it like worrying yeah but it, it's you know it kind of goes beyond that it, sort of debates are supposed to be there so different people who are vying for the job can explain what their positions are on the policies uh and the positions and the issues that confront americans in this case right now like what would you do with this or that or whatever the issue may be he doesn't answer any of those questions. All he talks about is what he wants to talk about, that he was cheated, that he's, he's there for retribution, that he wants to execute the, the former uh, uh, chairman Chief. of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, we have no idea what his position is on, on major issues that confront the country. Um, this drives Trump supporters in, in this country uh, nuts, and there are some uh, who write, you know, letters into the program here, whining and moaning about what we say about Trump, who now is a convicted fraudster. Right, the judge in a civil court yesterday said we don't even need a trial beyond what the uh, witnesses have put forward here already. It's a fraud what he's been doing in terms of his business, and he could end up, as you said. He could end up losing everything, including his condo, Trump Tower. We'll see where that one ends up. Anyway, I just find it amazing that the party itself is sort of saying, oh, that's fine. He doesn't have to be here. We'll have all these nobodies uh, debate instead. Yeah, he's got them all cowed. They're all worried about retribution. They're all worried that... Um, um, it's not their party anymore. It's his and um, his base voter uh, that are big enough and energetic enough uh, that that they basically decide what the Republican Party is today. It's a, it's quite a shocking turn of events. It, it, if you'd sort of said 10 years ago, could you imagine somebody being so exceptional that they could achieve that level of control over a party of that size with that history in a democracy that big with so many moving parts, you, you, you would say, well, no, but if it was going to be some, if there was going to be such a person, you'd think they'd have to be more extraordinary uh, in a talented way than Donald Trump. And right. I mean, it's hard to look at this guy and say, spend $11 billion on a vetting exercise to get to this individual. Um, but there's something about his celebrity and his style that um, appeals to enough people, just enough people yeah. to, uh, to make him have that power. 
Well, he certainly uh, he certainly seems to have that power. I still think he'll get trounced if he's not in jail in an election next year, but I've been wrong on Trump all along. So who's to say I'm not wrong again? If all we right. get closer, I might take the over on that. I might think that we'll see. <laughs> yeah. I hope not, but... Okay, that's uh, that's going to wrap it up for this day. Bruce, uh, Bruce will be back oh, on pleasure Friday. Pleasure to see you. A pleasure to see you and your Brora golf sweater. Bruce will be back on uh, Friday with Chantal as we uh, do a little good talk. Tomorrow it is your turn, so if you've got uh, things to say, drop me a line. Drop it now at uh, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast. The ranter. And Any ranter? The ranter's tomorrow. tomorrow. He's every every week, every Thursday. He's doing a he's in the bullpen right now, ranting away. I'll get him ready for uh, for tomorrow. So that's tomorrow's program on uh, your turn on the random ranter. Um, I'm Peter Mansbridge for Bruce. Have a uh, great evening. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again tomorrow.